So I wanted to uh, just mention a few things at the top before we really get into the episode. One is that we got the website up and running. Um, bear with us as we try and figure out the technology aspect of this. Uh, technology is not my strong suit. The fact that it's up and running is step in the right direction. So go and check it out. Your likes will help us. So hey, like us if you have something negative to say. Fuck you. Yeah. The second thing is to email us at whiskeyandwino at gmail.com and let us know what you think. Any constructive criticism would be helpful. Don't be an asshole because you'll just go right in the trash. Um, yeah, and you can email us with anything, like any cool stories or if we remind you of something and you want to share it, share it on the Facebook, uh, Instagram. We're hopefully all over the place. So all of the social media, Facebook, Instagram, um, all of that. And we are going to get better, I promise. You can only get better. Yes. Also, because of the craziness that's going on with the coronavirus and the social isolation orders and such, uh, we're going to try and put out as much new content as we can uh, to try and keep you guys entertained. Unfortunately, it is also while our kids are home from school. So our concentration is constantly interrupted. So, but we will, we will do our best. Well, I'm kind of lucky. Well, or unlucky. I still have to work. I I work in an essential field in banking. So we are still open at this moment, nine to five. We're still up and functioning. So for right now, I am still working. Ah, um, But it's very quiet. I just say my commute is like an hour and 10 minutes every day. I work 25 miles from work, but I, it takes me about an hour and 10 minutes, hour and 15. And I'm figuring work in about 25 minutes wow like freeways are creepy and skeletal and I, I don't hate it but it's really creepy I'm not gonna lie it's really yeah. creepy it's so weird out there right now yeah Whew. strange days strange days like you want to talk about strange days this is a podcast and in itself. I want you to know, everyone, I'm drinking out of my favorite Gettysburg um, ghost glass purchased on my ghost hunt with my niece, Katie Cat. We went to Gettysburg about mm, about three years ago, four years ago. Did a ghost hunt. It's my favorite glass. I'm drinking a white Russian. Ooh, white Russian. He shot, so I'm still whiskey. Cool, cool, cool. Genocide, I'm, fuck yourself. I don't care. No, white Russian does sound really good. It's pretty yummy. I'm using half and half, so it's super yum. I am switching it up a little bit from my normal Yellowtail brand wine to Barefoot because I didn't have enough money to stockpile any sort of uh, expensive wine or even mediocre expensive wine. So it's all $5 bottles of wine so that I can maintain my stock. My husband spent um, about 250 at the grocery store. I spent 130 and then we went and spent 200 on liquor. Yeah. But well, we'll be out soon, so don't get me wrong. But we're going to go back out because in California, everybody it, in the Brussels liquor here, it's not well, like uh, state licensed. Super nice because my Pennsylvania people have no state licensed liquor stores open right now. And I'm I'm sorry, my peeps. But who knows what can change by week by week because we are definitely in some different territory, people. It's day by day. We it's, I think we've definitely... Definitely. Like at this time, we were making fun of it, and now we're all like, oh, fuck. Yeah. I'm going to see my parents in two weeks. I have a stepdaughter we just got custody of, and I'm in this weird transition where they want to meet her, and I want to see my parents because maybe it'll be 18 months before I see them again. Yeah. Because this keeps going on, and I'm like, am I wrong to go see them? Am I infecting them? Like, I don't know what to do. Am I selfish if I go? Should I not go? I don't, I don't know what to do. They live out in the country. They're in an Amish village. They're not Amish, by the way. You're going to have um, to have a big Skype party. What's funny is my mom's like, come on out. Like, we're cool here. We hoard food. She doesn't say that, but I say that. My parents hoard food. And they have guns, and they're in the middle of an Amish village, so they're pretty safe. But I don't want to bring them anything. But I'm yeah, afraid especially I going on an period. airplane. Yeah, airplanes are gross. And I'm in Vegas for like three hours on the way there. So we're still debating if we're going to go. It's goddamn, this is a weird time. Yeah, well, we so canceled our Vegas trip. We're all freaking like, what's going on? We feel you. So we're hoping you, we give you some entertainment and know that we're, we're here with you. We're all feeling yes. it. Nobody yes. wants to go with their spouse and children. We might have, if we all live through this, might have a lot more stories next year because yes. I don't want to live with kid and spouse for in a house. That's very shining for me. <laughs> 
It's how about gonna you? Get weird. How about you, Jen? I have a cat and dog out here chasing each other. No, I. If, Honestly, everything's been okay. I mean, I stay at home during the day with the kids, so it's not changed too terribly from another, like a spring break or something, except for the fact that we can't go anywhere. You know, there's no, we can't go to the movies or anything like that, which I don't know. I, I'm, I do feel very blessed that I have a big enough house and a big enough yard that I'm not feeling too claustrophobic. So this week we have a story that has um, inspired some urban legends or some uh, haunting tales. So we're going to go into this possibly might be a two parter, uh, depending on how long it goes. So but we don't want to leave out any good information just to keep it short, because Lord knows we all have time to listen to podcasts now. So um, so this story takes place in a uh, seemingly normal upper middle class suburban family home. I think I'm going to give it away for some people with the address of the home. Pretty infamous at 112 Ocean Avenue. Um, the DeFeos lived, I think that's how you say their last name, the DeFeo family. Yes. They lived a quiet life in a community in Long Island called Amityville. They were a devout Catholic family with all their children in Catholic school. I have to say this now. Mm-hmm. Amityville is also where Jaws was filmed. Really? Yeah, if you ever watch Jaws, it's it takes place in Amityville. Obviously, it was at Universal Studios, LA, if anyone's ever been there. Ah. But I just put that out there, mostly because I wanted to go. Da-na-na-na. So go ahead. <laughs> Uh, That's interesting. So yeah, the kids were all in Catholic school. They were a pretty devout Catholic family. They were Ronald Sr. was 44. Luis, the mother, was 42. Um, Ronald Jr. was 23. Don, 18. Allison, 13. Mark, 12. And John, 9. So yeah, Catholic. Um. (laughs) Right? You know the Bible verses? (laughs) Yes. On November 13th, 1974, day before your birthday, not the year, but the day, at around 6.30, Ronald DeFeo Jr., also known as Butch, um, which classy. Butch. I did not know that. No offense if your name is Butch or you choose to go by Butch. Uh, he And I'm going to refer to him for the rest of the story as Butch because his father's name is Ronald DeFeo and it's a senior junior situation and I don't want to confuse the two at all or have you guys at home be confused. Uh, the 23-year-old son Butch ran into Henry's bar, which is a Long Island bar that he would frequent, uh, and said, quote, you got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot, unquote, which strange. So he got three people from the bar to come back with him to his house. So it's the 70s. They didn't have cell phones. I don't know why he didn't call from the house when he found them. But when you find a dead body, do you not go to a bar? (laughs) I would need to probably. Right. I mean, you know. He got three people from the bar to go back to his house with him. And that's where they found the family, minus Butch, right. obviously. Okay, if you were in a bar, someone ran in and was like, dude, I just found my parents dead. Would you go back with him? To no. The- oh. No. There's a bar. You're a little buzz, so you'd be like, I got to see this shit. I'm not going to no. lie. Liar. Me too. No way. No way. I, it, I. But I get the feeling that these people all knew each other, so it wasn't wow. like a random person. <laughs> That's a good point. You're right. I'll give you that. Uh, They get back to the house, and it was actually one of the people that Butch brought back from the bar. Wow. Tongue twister. Uh, Joseph Yeswitz, who called 911 to report the murders. Uh, he didn't know the, and I don't know if it's nine, if it was actually 911 or if he just called the operator and they patched him through to the police. You can find the whole um, transcript on Murderpedia. They Ooh. have the whole like 911 thing, but I, it doesn't say 911. And then when he's talking, it sounds like there's police versus like a 911 dispatcher. They're I don't know. Either, right? They're like, what? city and state, please. Yeah. Well, but I don't know. I know 911, I mean, it's relatively new. It's not, it hasn't been around for a long time. So I don't know if in the small towns they have, I I have no idea. All right. Um, Whatever. He went to a bar first. So, you know. Yes, he went to the bar first. Uh, Joseph Yeswitz called 
And the operator was just like, okay, what, what's the address? And he's like, I don't know the address. Okay, well, what's the phone number? I don't know the phone number. There's no phone number here. And she's like, okay, so there's dead bodies and you don't know where you are, what the address is, but it's on uh, Ocean Avenue and it's the DeFeos. And it, he's saying that if, you know, if anyone talks to the local police, they'll know exactly where I am. So the police get there. That's when they discover that it wasn't four bodies. It was six. They found two extra. Wait, I thought he he found his parents dead. That's what he said. But then when they get there, yes, he went to the bar and he said, I think my parents have been shot or however he says it. And then he brings the three people home and they go inside and then they find the other people. So and then but they they found his. I, I'm not sure the exact way that it went, how they found them. But while this Joseph person was on the phone with the operator explaining what happened and, and needing an ambulance and police and whatnot, um, he says, I believe there's four. They're telling me it's four people. And so I think the other two people from the bar had like gone through the house. Cause it's a three story house. I mean, it's it's not a small house. So I think they went through and they were just they found you know, the parents and then some of the kids and they were just reporting it. And it wasn't until the police got there and actually looked into all the bedrooms and, you know, cause they were panicked. I'm assuming all these kids that came back with him were like somewhat friends of his, like around, you know, mid twenties. So they were probably freaked out. Do you uh, think? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine you're just sitting in a bar, chilling, having a beer and your friend comes in? What a ruined night. <laughs> Dead bodies. Come check it out. Mm-hmm. Right. By the way, they're my parents and my siblings. But dude, check it out. Yeah. Uh. So the police are talking with Ronald. Ronald tells the police that it was probably a mafia hitman called Louis Fellini, and he said he was a. There was a grudge over some work done at his grandfather's car dealership. A little backstory on that. Michael Biganti Sr., which is Butch's grandfather, it's his mother's father, he owned a very successful Buick dealership that was in town. So I think that's why when the people called 911, they said, you know, if you come to this house, you'll know this family because they're pretty prominent in the neighborhood. People know who they are. Uh, Yeah. So he says, It's got to be this guy over some beef that happened at the car dealership. And so they initially put Butch into protective custody while they were looking for this Luis Fellini guy. And then police started getting evidence from the house and looking through the house. And it was becoming very clear that it was not this mafia guy they he had an out-of-state alibi so butch was arrested the next day and part of that evidence that they found was each family member was shot in their bed with a 35 caliber remington lever action rifle which is a six shot rifle it has six rounds in it they were shot around 3 to 3 30 a.m all in their bed face down on their stomachs uh they got that time of death because they were sent neighbors had told them that they heard the DeFeo's dogs. They had a German shepherd and we know how loud they can be. Woof, woof. <laughs> um, they had a German shepherd and a sheep dog. So the you neighbors don't hear it throughout this podcast for my dog. Who's a German shepherd who likes to hear her own dog bark. Yes. And we hear her too. We love her bark. Love the wolves. Yeah. So the neighbors heard the dogs barking, but they did not hear any gunshots or screams or anything. It was just dogs barking. So I don't know if the dogs barking would muffle a gunshot. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. Evidence showed that Louise and her daughter, Allison, which is the 12 year old, were awake when shot. I don't know the exact evidence that proved that, but that's what the findings were. And that there was no evidence of sedatives in any of the victims' bodies or uh, no sign of a gunman trying to suppress the gunshot sounds. So, like, no uh, pillows. Heard, to... Okay, you brought it up, pillows. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I, when I read this story, they, I've heard that, that nobody heard a thing. I'm like, maybe they use pillows, but I guess there'd be a shot through it, right? To know for sure? Yeah. All right. They also found a pillowcase right outside of the home that they think was used to clean up. He he cleaned up. Like, uh, I'll I'll further cover that a little bit. But he says he uh, took a bath and took his clothes off and and put everything into a pillowcase. And then they found the pillowcase with his blood on it or with gunshot residue and stuff on it. So they did look all around the home. So if there was a gunshot, you know, a, 
a pillowcase with a bullet through it. So the family was murdered around three, we talked about three to three thirty or so a.m. on the 13th. And that morning, Butch went into work at his proper time. Uh, and work is really loose. Okay, so he worked at his grandfather's car dealership. He did not work there. He just fucked around. He did not show up to work very often. He uh, left all the time. And when he was at work, he didn't really work. But it was his grandfather's dealership and his dad worked there. So his dad was his boss. When Ronald Sr. didn't show up to work that day, he said he didn't know where his dad was. And he made a point to call the house and then tell everyone that there's no answer. And he didn't understand why there was no answer. Uh, He left work that day around noon, which was totally usual. Like and he's he said he was bored. And so he left and he went to the bar with his friends, which, again, was very usual. Uh, He made several calls to his house from the bar and then made a point to tell everyone, oh, I just called my house and nobody answered. This is after he went to the bar, right? No, no, no. This was the day. This was the day. The day of. Got it. Day before. Yeah. So he left at some point and then came back to the bar around 630. And that's when he, you know, said his parents were shot. So a little bit of a backstory on Butch. He was kind of a troubled kid and his home life wasn't, you know, to the outside eye, it was a very wholesome family, but it seems that his father was abusive by some counts verbally. I don't know about physically, but it seems like the household that he was brought up in is the father was very loud and aggressive and the mother kind of just would back down and get very meek. So Butch being the oldest and a male, he would get really argumentative with his father, like right back. And he would get... Um... Hi, Zoe. Speaking of German Shepherds. Yeah, so Butch would get argumentative back with his father at times. When he was an early teenager, his parents tried to have him see a psychiatrist, but he stopped going. Um, and his parents didn't really know what to do. So they did what they felt was a good idea, which was to give him everything he wanted. Oh, and yeah. okay. at, I mean, I don't wow. know what you do. Right. And also, I mean, in the seventies, it's not like there's a bunch of, or sixties when he was um, that young, It's not like there was a whole lot of self-help books or, you know, what to do with your troubled teen. It's really progressive in the 60s or 70s to even think of that, to be honest. Like, he must have been kind of fucked up. Right, yeah. Now, where you know, anyone has a little thing and you're like, dude, you need to go to a shrink. Yep. He got anything he wanted. He would just ask if he wanted money or if he didn't feel like asking, he would just take it. And he never got in trouble. What a nice butch. Yeah, his parents bought him a new car. They they bought him everything that he wanted. So his salary that he got at the car dealership, he just used for drugs and alcohol and to stockpile a secret gun stash. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> yeah, as one does. As one does. Not too long before the murders, he was behaving erratically. He threatened to shoot a friend with a rifle during a hunting trip. He just got mad at him and said, like, I'm going to fucking shoot you. He got also got into his father's face when his father was yelling at his mother. He came down from his room and he had a 12 gauge shotgun and started yelling at his dad, pointed the gun at his dad's face, point blank and pulled the trigger. Oh, shit. Yeah. The gun malfunctioned and it did not shoot. Oh, wow. And then just weeks before the murders, so the murders were in mid-November. This was late October. The dealership gave him $20,000 or a little bit more than $20,000 to deposit at the bank. And he and a friend staged a robbery to steal the money and split it. So it wasn't enough. He was getting everything he wanted from his parents financially. He had a salary that he didn't have to work for. And it wasn't enough, apparently. He had to steal money from his grandfather. Wow. And then this is... So the cops came to question him. Per usual, you you know, you file a claim for a robbery. They want to come talk to him. Uh, oh. Completely normal procedure. Uh, he completely lost his shit and flew into a rage. They found this a little odd. 
So they asked him to come down to the station to look at mugshots of the people who they described robbed him, and he refused to do it. So his father became a little bit suspicious and confronted him about it. And Butch said, uh, I will kill you. Like, just threatened him. Like, shut up. I'm going to kill you. Uh, let's get into the trial a little bit. So they arrest Butch for the murders. And I read on several different things that they would say he didn't have a motive for the murder. And that was one of the first things that I found. And it wasn't until I dug deeper into it that I found out all of these like erratic behaviors and such that was like, it sounds like he did have a motive. It said that... At one point when he was in police custody, he asked, how do I get a hold of my father's life insurance? So the prosecutor said that it was financially driven, that he just wanted his dad's money, which is odd to me because he basically had a cash cow. Like, why would you feel that? Right. But it could have been something where his dad was so fed up and was like, fuck it, I'm cutting you off. Like, we've given you everything and you're still a shit. So uh, there's no evidence of that. That's, of course, speculating. But who knows what happened? Yeah, free. Like, he was getting it all. Like, how much more do you fucking want, dude? Yeah. Well, it's, it, there's got to be something wrong psychologically in his brain about, like, you know, whether it's impulse control or, you know. Early I'm influenza. Not... <laughs> Affluenza. Mm, yeah, that thing. <laughs> uh So the trial started October 14th, so just about a year after, in 1975. His lawyer uh, had the insanity defense for Butch, uh, saying that he heard the voices of his family members plotting to kill him. He killed them first before they could actually act out this. A psychiatrist who was brought in to uh, analyze him said that he had an antisocial disorder and was heavy into heroin and LSD, but definitely would have known what he was doing and wouldn't have been insane while committing these murders. About a month after that, on on November 21st, 1975, he was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder. And December 4th, a judge sentenced him to six sentences of 25 to life. And some sites that I found, it said concurrent. And then some said consecutive. But I believe it's consecutive because he's not getting out. Uh, I found the same thing you did, the six counts of 25 to life. I, I found the same thing when I researched, too. Yeah. And I was like, that's a weird sentence. Yeah. So, no. I get the back and forth. Yes, you're correct. He had all of his appeals and parole requests have been denied. And he's currently, yeah, he's currently at the Sullivan Correction Facility in Fallsburg, New York. So this is, he he gets so odd after this. So after he's sentenced and his conviction, he says that what really happened that night was that his sister, Dawn, who was 18 at the time, killed their father while they were in a fight. The mother was so distraught that she killed Don and all the rest of the children. So Butch had to kill his mother. Hmm. But he says that, yeah, he says the only person he killed was his mother, which I definitely don't believe it because, I mean, first of all, Butch is a spoiled liar. But like right. if, if that were true and it went down like that, the scene would be super chaotic, right? Like if your sister kills your dad while your mom's going nuts and killing the rest of the family, like I can't, no, you can't be in your beds. And, and the evidence was that everyone was shot. Yeah. They were all shot on their stomach in their beds. That's weird. Unless you're a little kid. I don't know, but they, there's no sign of any other crime scene in the house. So it's not like he shot them in other places and then moved their bodies. True story. Right. You're right. So I can't believe that that is what happened. That seemed pretty, pretty messy. And he brought that up like what, like 12 years later? Yeah, they filed a I believe it was a 440 um, motion and all of this stuff came out. So uh, he said that he couldn't say any of this before his trial or during his trial because he was afraid that his grandfather and his paternal great uncle would have had him killed. Uh, and he says this. That's the mafia? Yeah. He says it because his father's uncle was Pete DeFeo, a.k.a. Billy Aquiline. Uh, I fucked that up, I'm sure, but I'm 
not Italian, so forgive me. A member of the Genovese crime family, and he was a capo, is what they call it. It's short for caparigami. I'm, I don't know. If, I'm sure I'm going to get emails about this. Um, <laughs> but uh, which basically meant that his father's uncle was head of a crew. In, and he held a very high position in this crime family. So he Got was, it. I mean, so if you follow that logic, yes, he probably could have had him killed. But he also then, just a bit later, comes up with this other story that was Butch was married to a woman called Geraldine Gates. They lived in New Jersey at the time. His mother called him and told him to come home to break up a fight between his sister Dawn and their father. So he drove with a man called Richard Ramondo, who was his alleged wife's brother, and that Richard was there at the time of the murders. He said that Dawn killed the whole family and that he only killed his sister Dawn. So first story, he only kills his mom. Second, he only kills Don. So they're like, okay, well, you say this Richard guy was with you when when these murders went down. So they submitted to the court to find this guy and get his testimony. And then it turns out that this man does not exist. Shocking. Yeah. And then this Geraldine Gates at the time was living in upstate New York and married to a different man. However, Ooh. she, she does marry Butch in 1989. I, I couldn't figure it out. I'm I don't right. Know. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, so Butch signed a statement though, that said, and this is before his claims that he was married to someone else and wasn't living at home. There's a signed statement that said that he was living at home at 112 Ocean Avenue and worked for his father and his at his grandfather's car dealership and that he stayed home from work on November 12th, which was the day before the murders. And technically, I mean, you you know, the day rolls over at midnight, but 3 a.m. is kind of like super late night of the 12th. So he wasn't at work that day. And then at that time, he was also on probation for stealing an outboard engine and had an appointment to see his probation officer in town. Who knows about all that? He changed his story too many times. Yeah, he did. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So no one gives him the time of day anymore. It's like any stories he has is like, nah. he also says that his insanity defense was totally concocted by his lawyer and his lawyer told him that was the best option. Sounds to me like he's not completely, um, I know the legal terms are much different, but it sounds like he could be crazy a little bit. <laughs> All right, let's listen to a ghost story. Yes. Okay, so first I want you to know, I watched the movie last night, Ooh. and the movie is nothing like the book. And the book was written by Jay Anson, but it is the Lutz family story. It's um, George and Kathy Lutz. This is the real deal. So if you've seen the movie, this is going to be better because the movie embellishes a bit and leaves out a lot. Mm. Although Ryan Reynolds is really hot, so it's kind of worth to see him take his shirt off. Just putting it yeah. out there. <laughs> Have you seen the movie? No. Oh. I haven't seen the movie. I don't watch On Netflix. Oh, that's right. Mom. <laughs> but yet you do a scary podcast. I know. I don't right. know why. I'm sure there's some science behind that. I'm sure of it. I watch documentaries about true crime. I mean, almost exclusively. But the Hollywood stuff freaks me out. That's funny. All right. Well, 13 months after the murders, the Lutz family bought the house for $80,000 due to the gruesome crime. Oh, well, what do you know what it was worth if like the neighborhood? Okay, so when they were looking, they were looking in the thirty to $50,000 range because this is back in 1975. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1975. They were like, okay, we'll look at this house. And then they walked in and they were like, there's no way this is $80,000 house. And the realtor's like, well, they're like, what's the catch? And so it should probably be worth back then about one hundred and fifty to 200000 Okay, so it's a really nice neighborhood. It's very, very affluent. Yes, yeah. Amityville was very affluent. So they were cool with the, the, the murders, but we'll get to that. Okay. So <laughs> there would was you George. Be, would you be, would you buy the house if you heard that story that we just talked about? So I would, okay. My first thing is to say, hell no, mm-hmm. fuck no. But when I saw the house, like when they walk in and you're looking at everything, you might go, well, yeah, 
Maybe. If it's your dream home, I mean, they had a pool, they had a boathouse. It was three stories. It had a basement. That's pretty badass. Yeah. Yeah. And it's significantly discounted. So. Yes. Yes. Big discount. There were five. It was George Lutt, his wife, Kathy. They had just got married. Um, Kathy had three children from a previous marriage. Chris, nine, Danny, seven, and Missy, five. Um, so it was three stories, like I said, six bedrooms. They had a dining room, a view of the river, of course, the pool. Mm-hmm. And um, George had two boats, so it was perfect for them. So they had a little bit of money. What do you need like, two boats for? He had a speedboat and a cruiser. Oh, I see. So I guess it depends how fast you want to go that day. <laughs> so he was actually a land surveyor. He had his own land surveyor company that had been his grandfather's and then his father's, and he had recently just taken it over. So he was going to to save on the money because, like I said, they were looking for a house for 50 grand. He would move his office into the basement to save some money. Mm-hmm. So on December 18th, 1975, they moved in and they only stayed there 28 days before they moved out. Mm. So I'm going to do it by weeks because I don't want to give you a date by date because that's annoying. Okay. okay. So this is week one. So because of the gruesome murders, um, they had a friend that was a priest. In the book, they call him Father Mancuso. Real name, Father Ralph Pecoro. But, you know, we're, we're using fake names here, at least for the father. I think okay. at the end when this all came out, he like confirmed it. And then he kind of backed out a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also a lawyer and a psychotherapist. He was an underachiever. Um, so yeah, he came by to bless the house. So Father Mancuso felt uneasy all day. He didn't really want to go and he didn't know why because this is what he did and he just he couldn't figure it out. He gets there, says hi. He walks into the house with his holy water and he's doing his Bible verses to get the evil out just in case. And as he walked into the house and he's walking around, he heard a voice behind him scream, get out. Whoa. So that kind of freaked him out. So he decided he was just going to go. He kind of ran through the rest of the house, here's some water, and then he bailed. So he's driving to his mom's house for dinner. He arrives at his mom's house, and she's like, are you sick? What's wrong with you? He's like, what do you mean? So he looks in the mirror, and he's all pale, and he has these dark black circles under his eyes. And he's like, well, that's weird. So he, like, just put some water on it, no big deal. Yeah. Um, he, he leaves his mom's house, driving down the freeway, and his car kept pulling to the right kept pulling and then all of a sudden his hood flew up and then it just puttered and stopped what so he's like what the f he calls a a friend i guess he had to go to a payphone because there are no cell phones called Mm -hmm. another friend a priest that was nearby the priest came by picked him up and they went to a um a mechanic they went back and they couldn't get the car to start so he's like whatever just take me home back to my priest house my priest house (laughs) <laughs> uh, what do they call it? A rectory, I think is the name. Yes. The official priest house name. <laughs> yeah. So he gets home. He's chilling. And about an hour later, his friend calls and he goes, what is going on? And Father Macuso is like, what do you mean? He's like, I was driving home and all of a sudden my windshield wipers went all wacky. I didn't even have them on. They just turned on and they were doing all this weird shit. And like, what's going on? And the father's like, I don't know, man. It's just one of them things. I had to bring up the priest because he's he gets important in this kind of. The first night in their home, the Lutzes are hanging out. They go to bed. They've been, you know, carrying stuff all day. They also bought a lot of the furniture that the family had left behind. Mm-hmm. I can't think of their name off the top of my head. The Feos. Yeah. They bought like their dining room set, a bedroom set, their fridge, washer, dryer. So they're sleeping that night and George woke up at 3.15 a.m. He stared out the window to the boathouse. Their dog, Harry, was going apeshit, just barking, going crazy. So George went down there, didn't find anything, thought maybe Harry saw a cat. Earlier in that day, Harry did not want to go in the house. Harry was a big Malamute type dog, and mm. he had tried to jump the fence, and he was on a long like leash, and he was hanging himself when oh, luckily no. they found him and they shortened the leash so he couldn't do that anymore. So the dog was kind of tripping all day, so they were like, hmm. What's up with the dog? So George didn't sleep that night and got up in a really foul mood, which if you know, if you've ever been around a man when they're moving, they're very, very grumpy. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes to bed. He goes to sleep at about eight o'clock in the morning. He takes a little nap because he was up all night, gets up for breakfast a few hours later, and the boys are outside playing with the dog and he gets all pissed off and he goes out there and he's like, knock it off. So... Kathy had never seen him that angry before with the boys. They were just being boys. Jeez. Yeah, they're just playing with the dog. Shit. Right. 
I mean, they're outside in their yard. Calm down. So over the next couple of days, they're, you know, moving stuff in. They're unpacking. And George was just in a pissy mood. He was upset that it never got warm in the house, even though the thermostat, which I actually wrote down heater thingy. <laughs> heater thingy. Men it would show that it was 80, men in their thermostats. He would show it was 80 degrees, but he was obsessively putting logs on the fire. Like his whole life for like three days was constantly adding wood to the fire. He added so much wood, they went through a cord in a, under a week, which I don't know how much a cord is, but I guess that's a lot. We don't use I, wood that much in California, so. <laughs> yeah, I have a gas fireplace. Oh, there you go. So every night he woke up at 3.15 a.m., on the spot, which what's significant about 315, that's supposedly when the DeFeo murders were. Mm-hmm. And it's also the witching hour. Has it always been the witching hour, 3 a.m.? I believe so. Oh, I, I don't. We'll have to research that. Like, why is that the witching hour? I guess that's yeah. supposedly the time of day that the dimension into different worlds open. Or that's when it's at its weakest. Hmm. Well, there's a little witchy thing for you. So <laughs> I have to bring this up because... A lot of people say Amityville was a hoax and they did it because they were having money problems because they mm-hmm. overspent. I had to bring this up. Kathy, the kids were just getting on her nerves and they were getting on George's nerves and they were just being their normal kid self, which they've always been really nice, good kids. Mm-hmm. Well, they got really bitchy at him one day and just started beating them with belts and wooden spoons. What? All three kids. And they've never done this before. Um, well, I mean, there's always a first time. Right, that's true. There's got to be a first time, right? But I thought that was kind of funny, like, hmm, are these people abusive? Maybe they're just making all this up because they want an excuse why they beat their kids. So yeah, that nice. night, they heard, a, they heard a huge bang. They ran downstairs to find their 250-pound front door off its hinges, something oh. that would have been impossible for, like, a human to do or the wind or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had to call a locksmith the next day, which she said, like, what did you guys do? And they're like, we didn't do anything. It was a wind. I guess he was going to put it back on the hinges. Wouldn't you call like um, a handyman? (laughs) Like, you know, a carpenter maybe? Yeah, you don't need a... That's true. I guess they had to fix the lock since the whole damn door was removed. So um, the same day... The boys told Kathy, their toilet boy, toilet boy, (laughs) they had a toilet boy, (laughs) their toilet bowl was covered in black like paint, like the whole inside of the bowl was covered in black paint. So Kathy's like, what the fuck did you guys do? Like, what did you do? Did you paint this? What is that? Because she kept trying to scrub at it and it wouldn't go away. And the kids are like, mommy, mommy, please don't beat us again. Please don't beat us again. We we didn't do it. So that's why I had to bring up the wooden spoons and that. Because I'm like, these poor terrified kids. So she goes to the other bathrooms in the house. The same thing. Same black covered toilet. And she had just spent the day before cleaning it with Clorac. Just scrubbing the shit out of it. And everything else was clean. But now these toilet bowls just had this black ooze in it that she could not get off. So as she's checking out the bathroom, she smells this like death wrench like she thought like a dead animal had crawled into the wall and died and they couldn't figure it out yeah, open the windows animal. dead animal just don't D- dead animals don't crawl <laughs> no they don't <laughs> no they don't that's what's maybe what's at this, this house, house. Yeah, <laughs> this is on the second floor. She made one of the rooms her sewing room. So she went in there to check the smell because that's where it was really strong. And there were like a million flies all over the windows. Ooh. And this is December, late December in New York. There are no flies and they were just everywhere and they like wouldn't go away. So they're like, well, maybe the smell attracted them, even though attracted them from where we don't know. Yeah. So come Christmas Eve, Father Mancuso, we're going back to him. He was dreaming he was on the second floor where Kathy's sewing room was, and he just felt evil. He woke up, had the flu. He had a fever of 104, and he had blisters on his hands like stigmata. They were burning and oozing. Father Mancuso called George, and he's like, look, I had a dream about your sewing room. You need to stay the fuck out of there. Don't ever go in there. Don't enter that room ever. And then the line went crackly, and it died. And they they kept trying to call each other back, and it wouldn't work. So George was like, whatever. Maybe he doesn't like sewing. I don't know. So um, That would be so terrifying to have your priest call you. Right? And say, don't go in the sewing room. Yeah. And then just, like, hang up and, like, all right, man, that's cool. This was Christmas Eve. So Kathy's brother Jimmy came over with um, their mom. 
And George and Jimmy were very close. Like George was going to be the best man at his wedding, which was the day after Christmas. So they were looking at Weird George time. and they're like, what's they're like, yeah, I know. Right. Right after Christmas. And they're like, what's up with you, George? You smell, you have it shaved. And he's like, I haven't showered or bathed in a week. So they're like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, could maybe dress up a little bit. Yeah, it's Christmas. So, right. Take a shower. <laughs> you don't have to be all smelly. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing cool with that. So. On Christmas Day, he woke up again at 3.15, and he went down to the boathouse and just stared, and he's staring at the house. And he's like, why the fuck do I keep coming to the boathouse? So he looks up at Missy's window, and there's there's Missy standing there. And this is 3.15 in the morning, and there are five-year-olds just standing there. And behind oh. her is a demonic pig, like a demonic pig man with red what? eyes. So he runs into the house and runs up to her room, and she's fast asleep in her bed, but her rocking chair is rocking. And there was no pigman. So he didn't tell anybody about that. He's like, you know, it's Christmas. Maybe I shouldn't ruin things with a pigman. Um, so they noticed that Missy kept talking to herself. And they're, you know, kids have imaginary friends, whatever. And they're like, who are you talking to? And she's like, Jody. And they're like, what's Jody? And they're like, oh, that's my pig. He's my Ooh. friend. Only I can see him. And they're like, okay. Whatever, you know, imaginary pig friend. Didn't think much of it. So now we're on week two. George keeps waking up at 3.15 a.m. and going down to the boathouse. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know why all of a sudden he just can't control himself. So it's the hmm. day of Jimmy's wedding. So he actually decides to take a bath and shave. Thank God. Oh, that's nice. So the two boys were being little assholes again. And Kathy was over it. And she walked into the kitchen and she said, I want to get the wooden spoons out again. You guys better calm your shit. <laughs> All of a sudden, she smelled this really cheap perfume, and she felt this presence in the kitchen, but it was a nice presence. Like, she felt calm, and she felt these, like, nice, loving, comforting embrace, and all of a sudden, the embrace gets tighter and tighter, but not like a lover, like a mugger. And I put that light in myself, but I don't know why. So she tells it, leave me alone. And then all of a sudden, um, Missy's there, and she's like, it's okay, Mama. Jody says it's okay. Everything will be okay. For some reason, I put parentheses, Captain Pigpants. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Um, so, Jimmy, they're going to the wedding, right? It's Jimmy's wedding day, and Jimmy picks them up. Why the groom is picking them up and they can't drive themselves, I don't know. Yeah. But he's all excited. He pulls out $1,500 in an envelope that's in his pocket. And he's like, I just emptied my savings. And this is like all the money I have in the world. So George is like, well, hey, um, can you help me with some of the windows? They're stuck. They won't they won't close. Can you help me? So Jimmy's like, sure. So he goes and helps George with the windows. He comes back and he checks for his money and the money's gone. And that money was for the caterer. Oh. So they don't say anything like they look around the house. They can't find it. And they're like, we'll find it. It's cool. So they go to the wedding. And at the end of the night, the caterer's like, where's my money? And they're like, so they tell him the story. And the guy's like, yeah, great. My money. They opened their wedding gifts and they only got 500 in cash and it was $1,500. So George wrote him a check out of his personal account and his business, knowing that they weren't going to be covered. They were going to bounce. Oh, because. Ever since they moved into the house, he'd been neglecting his business. He had not been at work. That was just makes me wonder about the money problem theory. Mm-hmm. So uh, that night, it might have been the next night, not going to lie. Um, Kathy had the sculpture that George had gifted her. It was a lion and it was, you know, realistically colored and everything as a, as a lion is. And she swore, Kathy swore she saw it move on her own. And she's like, I'm just had too much to drink. Like, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> so... The next night, George tripped over it and went flying into the logs, and his ankle was hurting, and he looks down, and there was a bite mark from the lion. What? Obviously, they don't know, but he had bite marks on his ankle after he tripped over the lion that all of a sudden was in the middle of the room. At this time, Father Priest is still really weak from the flu. I called him Father Priest. (laughs) Father (laughs) Mancuso is still weak from the flu, and his hands are just oozing, and they're bleeding. And he can't stop thinking about the house. Did he so go he to the, the local- hospital? No. Did he go to the hospital? He did no. not. He did have a doctor come to his um, room, and but he didn't show him his hands. He, they just gave him some, like, antibiotics for the flu. But he oh, decided like 100... to call for it's pretty high. Yeah. yeah. So he called over a friend of his that was a sheriff in Amityville and asked him about the DeFeo murders. And the sheriff's like, yeah, I know those murders. 
the guy killed six people in his family, and that's it. And that's all he would tell him, and then he left. And the father's like, all right, well, thanks for your input. Um, So we're on week three. So George was putting out the roaring fire, and Kathy was shutting down the house to go to bed. All of a sudden, she screamed, and George turned around, and they were both looking into the face of a pig with red glowing eyes. The front door opened, and it was gone. So George grabs a flashlight and runs after it in the snow. All he could see were giant cloven footprints, as if left by a giant pig. Whoa. What's funny, another hoax part of this is, if you look at the weather, there was no snow that day, according to, I don't know, Farmer's Almanac, I don't know, whatever (laughs) you look at, record. And so they're saying, well, that couldn't have happened because it didn't snow that day, but... That's their story, and they're sticking to it. So George decided he better get to work because he needed to cover some checks. So Kathy was home with the kids, and again, she smelled that cheap perfume, followed by the caring embrace. But then a second pair of hands grabbed her tightly as if to turn her around. It was so tight she couldn't breathe. She screamed, let me go, and then she passed out. She woke a few minutes later to her kids being like, Mama, Mama, what's going on? And she called George, and she's like, hey, you need to come home. And they're like, oh, George isn't here. He's on his way home. And she's like, all right, cool. Well, George didn't go home. He went to a bar. In the book, they call it The Witch's Brew, but it was really Harry's Bar, which is where Ron DeFeo had gone after the murders. Oh, that's Henry's Bar. Oh, is it Henry's? I put Harry's. My bad. Henry's Bar. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, is it the same bar? But yeah. No, I wrote Harry's, but Henry makes more sense. Um. So he walks in and the bartender's just like staring at him, staring at him. And he's like, so can I get a beer? So he gives him a beer and he just keeps staring at him. And the bartender's like, I've never seen you here. Um, what, What's up? And he's like, oh, I just moved here. I'm living up on Ocean Drive at the DeFeo house. And he's like, you know, I was staring at you because you look just like Ron DeFeo. And Ooh. George is like, yeah, it's the beard. Like, no big deal. He goes, but since you brought it up, He goes, have you ever heard anything creepy about the house? And the bartender goes, no, but I did go to a party there once. He goes, you know, there's a hidden room in the basement. It's painted red. George and Kathleen had recently discovered that room, but George pretended like he didn't know what he was talking about. So Mm -hmm. the bartender goes on and tells them, yeah, they used to kill dogs and pigs in that room. So George left to tell Kathy the news. I want to know, why are you killing dogs? Yeah, what? Well, I guess if you don't kind of euthanize them, you know, before they did that sort of thing, like bring your your sick dog to a vet. Maybe they used to do it at home. But who has a room for like dog and pig killing? <laughs> That's really weird. I read that there was a pantry down under the stairs in the basement. But I think that house is like from 1900 or something, isn't it? Um, You know, I honestly don't know, but probably like that a- makes sense. It's a pretty old house. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Early 1900s. I do have that in my notes. So the dog, Harry, that's where I got Harry. The dog, Uh Harry, would never go down that room. Like, they tried to get him to go down there and sniff things out. Yeah, that's a dog dog killing room. Yeah. The dog's like, fuck no. You kill people like me in there or dogs like me. I'm not going (laughs) in there. Kathy tells George about her embrace. And George is telling her about the bartender. So they decide to call Father Mancuso again and maybe get a second blessing for the house. Father Mancuso picked up the phone and he was like, hey, you got to come over and bless this house again. And the father was like, fuck no. He probably <laughs> said it nicer than that. But yeah, we're just like, well, we'll cook you the best steak you've ever had. And father's like, nope, nope, nope. And he's like, you can spend the night. And he goes, no, I'm not coming to your house. And he's like, I'll get you so drunk that you have to spend the night. And then. Father Mancuso's like, dude, WTF? Like, I'm a priest. I don't do that. Yeah. Well, and, and how is like, that your incentive? Uh, yeah, I'll get right. You so I'll drunk that you'll stay. That you'll stay in my house that you don't want to come to. So George is like, please, Father, please, we need you. And then the phone got disconnected. Father Mancuso was like, I'm not going back there. It's not happening. So they called the sheriff, and the sheriff's like, look, man, I can't waste my time because you guys are creeped out. I'm not coming. I thought they were going to tell the sheriff that the priest won't come. Like, <laughs> like they expected well, the, the sheriff to do something. <laughs> the priest won't come. 
So they go down and they're checking out the red room, red room, because there was this huge mist of foul odor. So not only was it still stanking, there was a mist of stench. So they're like, I don't know what's up with here. You know, we keep trying to do stuff. Well, at the same time, the same odor was happening in Father Mancuso's room. He lit incest, incest. He did like any incest. (laughs) (laughs) He lit incense. This is the wrong story. (laughs) He lit incense and he was getting pissed because none of the other priest rooms smelled like ass, just his. So he started to kind of lose his mind a little bit. Like he's like, what is going on? Like, I want this taken care of now. And the other priests are like, dude, you need to chill out. Like, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. your room smells like ass. So he's like, maybe I'm just going to go spend the night at my mom's. And maybe when I come back, the smell will be gone. So George Hmm. and Kathy are asleep and George hears this cacophony of noise coming from downstairs. And yes, I just wanted to use the word cacophony. (laughs) He said it was like a marching band, like a full on marching band. It was just down there performing in his living room. So he runs down the stairs and there's nobody there. So he's like, what the hell? Okay, whatever. So he goes back upstairs and Kathy's levitating above the bed about four feet. Whoa. He pulls her down by her hair and she wakes up and she's like, what's up? And he's like, oh, you had a bad dream. Hold on. He pulled her by her hair. That's where you're going with that? Like, dude, your wife is levitating. You could at least like pick her up or push her body down. He just yanks her hair. And then he doesn't tell her. He's just like, I'm just pulling your hair, you know, hey. And he never he doesn't tell her that she was floating around the room. So George calls Father Mancuso again the next morning. And the priest is like, man, I'm a priest. Like, I'm supposed to not be a puss. Like, this is my thing. These people need me. Their children need me. He's like, fine, I'll come over, even though I don't want to. Hmm. So George told him about the, yeah, about the levitation. He's like, all right. He goes to God and he says, God, I need strength. And then all of a sudden his blisters begin to heal on his hands. So the father never said, because of course the phone got disconnected, when he would be there, like George didn't know. So he just kind of waited around for him and he didn't show up because the father had gone to um, his bishop and was telling him about the situation and his hands and the stigmata. And they're like, you need to stay out of this. Like, we're not going to help them anymore. Like if they need to call a paranormal investigator, like something scientific. Ghostbusters? Yeah. Like you're not going over there. You need to take yourself out of the situation. So he's like, cool, I'm going to take your advice because I don't want to go over there. Mm-hmm. So the next night, um, <laughs> the next night, George wakes up at 2 a.m. He decides to go to Henry's bar. Once again, how late are these damn bars open? Like it's 2 a.m. Yeah, and you're know. like, I think I'm going to go to the bar. So he leans Bars over to tell Kathy. At 2 a.m. They should be closed, right? So he leans over to tell Kathy and she's just floating around the room again like a Macy's Thanksgiving parade balloon. <laughs> And once again, he grabs her by the hair and he brings her back down to the bed and her hair had gone completely white. She turned to face him and she had the face of a 90 year old woman with deep wrinkles in her cheeks. Wow. He reached for her and felt her face. So she runs into the bathroom and she's like, oh, my God, what is going on with me? Oh, my God, George. Oh, my God. So they're trying to wipe off the wrinkles. By this time, her hair went back to blonde, but she still had these deep wrinkles. So her skin starts turning back into her skin, but she has three scars on her cheeks on each side of her face, which if you know anything about three scratches in demonology, it's supposed to be um, to blasphemy the Trinity. So it's always three scratches. That's freaky. Yeah. I did not know that. So as much as she scrubbed, she couldn't get them off. A few hours later, they were gone. So George, once again, calls Father Mancuso and asked, hey, when are you coming over? And the priest is like, I'm not, dude. I'm out. Like, <laughs> I'm not coming over. He told George, you need to get out of the house. Call a private investigator, whatever you got to do. I'm not coming. The phone went dead. And once again, the priest got the flu and his stigmata came back. Jeez. So George had a staff member that his girlfriend was a medium. So he invited them over and said, hey, can you check out my house? So she came in, checking through the house, and she goes, nope, something here wants to hurt me. I'm out. I'm not coming back. See ya. Good. She left. Yeah. So you got to trust your gut. A couple days later. I'm on week four now, by the way. So week four. Kathy's sleeping, and she wakes up and has these huge welts above her bikini line all the way up to her breast. 
when George would touch them, they were so hot. It was like a stove. It burned him. Oh. And she's like, I want my mommy. Like, I want my mommy. I want my mommy. So he calls her mom and she comes over and she's like, what the hell, Kathy? Like, what is going on? And she tries to touch him and she's like, ouch, why are they so hot? And George is like, I don't know. Like, we don't know. So Kathy's mom is like, you're coming home with me. And as she said that, the welts healed and they went away. They just left. Jeez. So Kathy and the kids went to her mom's for like a night and they came back the next day because they're stupid and why no one leaves a freaking house, I'll never understand. So they come back the next day and she goes up to her room and George is downstairs adding wood to the fire like he does obsessively and he hears Kathy screaming. So he runs up the stairs. He gets up there and all three children, um, she's she's threatening once again, all three children saying, I'm going to break every fucking bone in your body. And George Whoa. is like, what's going on? And she points to the walls and there's this green slime coming out of the walls, coming out of the, like the lock holes of the doors. And okay, stop right there. Why do you assume it's the kids after you've been in this creepy ass house? You just assume your kids are like, want to mess with mom? Yeah, well, and this was, I mean, that might happen now with all the slime that the kids play with. But like right? in the 70s, who has slime around? Like kids aren't just going to make it. Yeah, I mean, where do you think they got this? And like, they're like, let's fuck with mom after she's already beating us with spoons. Yeah. So George, being a dumbass, because I don't know why anyone would do this, he touches the green slime and puts it to his tongue. Oh, no. You smell it, maybe. Like Right? But like, why would you taste it? You know it's not jello. No. Like He's a toddler. Whatever. So they all clean it up. They're cleaning it off the walls and putting the slime into buckets. And they go down to the lake or the river and they throw it in there. And there's like buckets of this stuff. Jeez. So I'm like, thanks for polluting the river with your ectoplasm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> real classy there, George. They kept having the windows were continually open by themselves. And, you know, it's January now, so it's super freaking cold. And, it, and they keep shutting them. Like, he goes around, he shuts all the windows, all the doors. And then 10 minutes later, everything's open again. And now they're so forcibly opened there the windows are displaced from the jam hmm. they're just like ruined and so all the rain that's coming in is just getting all over the floors and the walls so the boys chris and daniel are trying to help him shut all the windows um the ones that aren't all messed up and chris starts crying so george runs into the room and the window had slammed down on his hand and when he took his oh. hands out his fingers were completely flattened like oh. Like you see in cartoon characters when a window slams on them. Jeez. So they took him to the doctor and they took x-rays and none of the bones were crushed. The bones were perfect, but the hand, the fingers were flat. That's weird. The doctor's like, I can't really do much. I'm just going to wrap them up and let's hope for the best. And call CPS. Right? (laughs) They must have not had CPS then. I don't know. I mean, that's pretty weird. So George is like, I'm kind of getting over this house. So he fell asleep in a chair. He was awoken by Kathy. And she's he's like, what? What is your deal? Why are you waking me? And she goes, you were screaming. I'm coming unglued. I'm coming unglued. And he was just screaming that throughout the house. So Missy ran up to him and said, Daddy, Jody wants to talk to you. And he's like, who the fuck is Jody? And Kathy explained, that's her imaginary friend. He's the biggest pig you'll ever see, said Missy. So George runs upstairs into Missy's room. There's no pig. And Missy says, don't worry, Daddy. He'll be right back. He just went outside for a minute. And then Missy says, oh, wait, there he is. He's back. And she points at the window. So George looks towards the window, and there's this demonized pig with the red glowing eyes. So from behind him, he feels somebody run, run behind him. And it's Kathy. She grabbed a chair, smashed the window, glass shards flying everywhere. And then here's a pig squeal. And then there's no more pig. Oh, my gosh. So they could see the pig, too? It wasn't just the daughter who could see the pig? Yes. They could see, like, the glowing red eyes and, like, a shape of a pig. Okay. So let's see. Okay. So the boys went to school the next day. Um, and George had an appointment with the IRS because he was having some money problems. Mm-hmm. So Miss, Missy and Kathy were alone in the house. Missy told her Jody was an angel and soon that Missy would die and they could be together forever in the house. And that's finally when Kathy said, you know what? I think we need to leave. I'm really not sure about this. 
but they decided to stay another night because why not? Yeah. So the, but they made the kids sleep in the master bedroom with them while George and Kathy slept on chairs. George started screaming in different tongues and saying in English, it's in Chris's room. It's in Chris's room. And he hears like sliding, like all these things sliding. So they run up to Chris's room and the bed's just sliding back and forth by itself. Whoa. They don't sleep the rest of the night. So yeah. they're finally like, they're like, we're really getting out of the house now. Like we're really leaving. Like that's it. We're just, we're done. So they had the kids pick up clothes, you know, get your, get some of your stuff, get your clothes, get the pooch. They get in the van and it won't start. And it just, it won't start. And it starts getting like hurricane winds and rainy. And they're like, shit, we're going to have to stay in the house. Like we can't leave. The car won't start. It's too windy to drive. It's too dangerous to walk. And their phone's hmm. not working because of the storm. So they go back in the house. I might sleep so like, in the car. <laughs> right? So electricity goes out. Of course it does. Mm-hmm. And for the first time, the thermostat was reading 90 degrees and it was so hot in there, they started opening windows because it was so hot when it's always been so cold. Then more green ooze started coming through the doors, down the stairs and dripping into the hallway. All the furniture upstairs started sliding. That marching band started up again. They were talking in different tongues. The boys ran down saying there was something in the room. Harry's freaking out. And there they looked up the stairs and there stood a hooded white figure. So they ran out of the house with only the clothes on their back. They jumped in the van, which all of a sudden started and left, and they never went back to the house. Not even to get their stuff? They didn't take one thing. They never stepped foot back in that house. They never got any of their belongings, toys, clothes, nothing. Okay, that would probably be the most evidence that I would believe that they actually believed there was something because if they really, if it was money problems or whatever, you'd need to get your shit and like sell it or have it. Or wouldn't you like, okay, take a a team of 10 people in the daylight with like guns or something just to Mm -hmm. go get your shit out. Yeah. Um, They did take a polygraph test and they passed it both Kathy and George. Um, They did divorce, I think in 1984 and Chris, one of the kids, had said, I think he did he did a documentary called My Amityville Horror. It hmm. was it wasn't free, so I didn't watch it, but he said <laughs> that his stepfather was into the occult, did transcendental meditation, trying to summon demons, but who knows if that's true or not. Jeez. Um they also said the house was on an ancient enclosure for the sick, mad, and dying. Shinnecock Indian Nation. Shinnecock. It's Shinnecock. I wrote right next to it. Shinnecock. <laughs> the Shinnecock Indian uh, Native American tribe had done it. So, so is do people live in it now? Yes. Okay. So people live in it now and nobody else has ever had anything bad to say about the house. Hmm. They uh, did have the Warrens, um, you know, uh, Lorraine Warren, the I think she's a medium. You know, they're the Conjuring and Annabelle and all that. The, uh-huh. I think they're called demonologist after they moved out they did have a bunch of paranormal investigators go in and they all said they felt things saw a little here and there but none of the people that live there or live there to this day have any stories to tell what about the the lutzes like could it possibly be that they were the one like the house wasn't haunted they were haunted so it's funny you bring that up because i didn't continue the story kind of that's where it ended ended in the house but they mm-hmm. went to her her mom's after that, and they said they would levitate on the bed again. Mm. But then I just stopped listening because it was an audible book and I was over it. Yeah. But um, the kids said they still have dreams about it. Like one kid said that never happened, and one kid's like, it totally ruined my life. And then Missy yeah. just has like no collection. She was five. She's like, eh. I remember my parents fighting a lot. Yeah. And they all don't get along. Like, they sue each other and kind of ugly. So, yeah. Should we talk about the lawyer suing? Who did they, who did the lawyer sue? That was a DeFeo's lawyer, right? Yeah. DeFeo's lawyer sued the Lutzes for, um, I think it was $60 million. He wanted wow. $60 million for his profits or his share of the profits of the book and the film. And so uh, he he also said that they came up with that story of the haunting over several bottles of wine. But huh. 
they it's a lot of wine yes they settled the defeo's lawyer settled with the lutzes so instead of getting his share of 60 million he got uh $2,500 and he that's got that's not very much from 60 million no plus 15 grand for his help with the book and the and the movies which i kind of feel like they are admitting that some of it maybe was made up or something i mean why would they give him any money he's the defeo's lawyer he he has nothing to do with the lutzes right? right true so why would they give him anything if it wasn't for the fact that he helped with the story or at least provided input that's true I don't know. I mean, they did have money trouble. I, I don't know if he lost a business after that. I also read that he was an amateur filmmaker, um, George Lutz, but I couldn't find that in the book. They never mentioned it. It was just mm. he was a land surveyor who had a good business going at the time. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Like, they swore it to the day they died. They're both dead, both Lutzes, um, Kathy and George, one from emphysema, one from heart disease. Well, I don't know. Like, like... I said before about them leaving all their furniture, that is a selling point for me to believe that it's true because all your personal shit, like your, your memories, your photo albums, your, your stuff. Yeah. Well, and it's the seventies. So it's your stuff. It's not like you have a computer that's got the cloud where you can get all of your stuff, you know, it's actual physical pictures and yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. So that's the story of Amityville, the real story. So if you've seen the movies, the book, I was really disappointed in the movie because the book had a lot of scary parts that they just didn't go over. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they did in the 1977 movie. I don't know. I watched the 2005 version. <laughs> oh, for Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. <laughs> He's pretty hot. Who's Dead the... Wolf. He works out. Yeah. Who's the um the mom in the movie? I can't, I can't think of her name, but I swear she looked like Margot Robbie, but it wasn't her. But oh. She was very pretty. She was very attractive. They were hmm. a very attractive couple. And it shows like George was a lot meaner. I mean, I don't know. They beat their kids with belts and spoons. So, but he was like evil from the beginning. So it was a oh. lot different. He never made coffins for him like they did in the movies. So, yeah. But interesting. Amityville. Well, yeah, definitely um, a crazy. I mean, even if it's not true, the fact that that family moved into a house and then left and sacrificed all that stuff for a story, that's a fucking pretty crazy story. Well, and they stayed there for 28 days. Only 28 days. That's yeah. crazy. So, I don't know. I got to believe, I'd like to believe some. It's the majority of it's true. Yeah. I would like to believe that. Because everybody knows about Amityville. Yeah, well, I don't and, know. We'll never I mean, know. it's possible that it's just them. They were haunted, you know, the the mother and father. Well, if he was meddling in the cult, maybe that did bring everything up. Yeah. Because it's weird that the people that live there after, because there's been like two or three families, and they never, they have nothing to say. They're like, nothing happens here. It's just a house. Yeah. So. Well, I don't know. We got it done. In <laughs> you're slurping. We about done. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I wanted we, to um, let you know. We got it done in one one episode though, so that's cool. Rather than a two parter. Everyone, be safe in the zombie apocalypse, COVID nineteen. Yes. Be healthy. Keep your distance. Stay home and listen Six to feet. our podcast. That's right. You have nothing better to do, so just keep listening, and we'll keep putting them out. Yes. Erin and Jen signing out.